This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. You know, one of the ways to get smart is to read and to watch and to listen and to hang out with teachers so that you get that transmission of knowledge. It's something that we all do. It's why we're all listening to this podcast and other podcasts. You know, be there, be present, absorb the content that's coming away. So that's all well and good. And there's a way to accelerate learning and it's to understand learning it's that kind of meta skill which is not just absorbing the learning but being smart enough to go i understand how learning works i understand what the drivers are for successful learning i understand how you move from insight to action action to habit habit to this ingrained way of just this is my new operating system so i'm always on the lookout for people who love to operate at that meta level, who are thinking to themselves, how do I get smarter at learning? So I've got that meta skill that accelerates my capacity to be resilient, be successful, have more impact in the world. So let me introduce you to my guest today. It's Trevor Reagan. He is the founder of The Learner Lab, which is an educational website designed to unpack and share the science of learning and development. He spends his time to thought leaders and researchers from the worlds of psychology and development science, consumes their research, connects the dots, and shares it with anyone that will listen. So that's me. That's you. It's also a whole range of sporting teams as well. I know he works for or with the U.S. women's volleyball team. He works with the Cleveland Indians. He's got a real focus in that sporting world as well. So we're going to probably dig into that as well. So Trevor, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I connected with you because I was talking to the Cleveland Indians organization who, you know, a sporting organization, but very committed to the idea of coaching and learning. And they have a great speaker series where they bring in in speakers. And I spoke and I noticed that you were a speaker before I was. I was like, who is, I've never heard of this guy. Who is this guy? And one of the phrases that was associated with you in that talk was train ugly, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, is, you know, the learning lab is a little more polished and a little more kind of erudite. Train <laughs> ugly is not that. Train <laughs> ugly means something else. Right. But what does train ugly mean? I mean, that's a great phrase. Yeah, That was the phrase that kind of put me on the map years ago. Um, it was the name of our business, the name of the website. And it was it was sort of the pinnacle of, if you study practice design and how to create like better drills and even the way we study in education, a lot of the research points to that. In fact, when we study, when we practice, we actually need to get our brain out of autopilot in order to really grow in those situations. And the ways to get our brain out of autopilot actually involve making that study session or practice drill more difficult. So you can introduce uh, variability, you can introduce spacing, and these are all ways to actually increase the difficulty of practice, but that leads to more gains in actual learning. And so the, the reason we came up with the name, it was actually on the whiteboard of the Olympic women's volleyball team gym. I spent a lot of time observing them, and they were kind of the first group to, to, to not only teach me this, but show me what it looked like in practice. 
And so I observed them practicing and they talked a lot about this, that training ugly doesn't mean we're reckless, but we're choosing to do things that involve the right type and right amount of struggle because we know that's how we grow the best. It doesn't necessarily feel the best, but it helps us grow and we're willing to struggle on purpose in order to grow and get as good as we want to. And so that's what training ugly is. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of things. I mean, I'm thinking of learning, learning the piano. And like, I, I was a terrible piano student. My, mm-hmm. my piano teacher, Mrs. Birmingham, I mean, I could feel her heart drop every time I walked in the room. Because she's like, this guy's a nightmare to try and work with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, practicing scales, it'd be like, it didn't feel like I was training ugly. It just felt like yeah. I was training repetitively, yeah. going up and down and up and down the keyboard. Mm-hmm. And, but it somehow had been drilled into me that repetition was the secret of success. But you're pointing to something else. Yes. So the three big pillars of making practice a little more ugly, a little more difficult. One is spacing. The other is it's we want to do the thing a lot. We want high reps, but without being repetitive. And we can talk more about that in a second. Oh, I love that. High the, reps, but without being repetitive. That's intriguing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then the other is we want our practice to be to involve variables that will be present in the performance. Uh, a good way to think about that would be in the sports world that sometimes when we practice, we actually are eliminating all these variables that we're going to have to deal with when we're playing the actual game. And when there's that big gap between what our practice looks like and what the game looks like, we're not going to see much transfer. And this is a big problem we see in sports, but also education that, wow, I feel like I'm prepared. I feel like I'm making lots of gains in practice, but they don't show up when it matters. And the reason for that in a, in a big way is, well, we're practicing in a different type of environment than we, than we need to actually experience in the game. So if I'm trying to become a better public speaker and I only spend my time alone in front of the mirror practicing my talk, like that environment is way different than the one that I have to face when I give my actual talk. Right. And so the way to improve that practice would be like, well, what are variables I might face in the big talk, well, there will be an audience. I only yeah. give, get to give the talk one time. I don't get seven practice runs. And so uh-huh. you can actually build those variables into your training to make it more difficult but better for uh, transferring over to the real performance. So I don't know much about volleyball, but when you when you were noticing the U.S. Women's Olympic team practicing and they were training ugly and you saw mm-hmm. that in play, mm-hmm. what did they do to mix up training so that you got those three variables that you're talking about? So for one, they spend a lot of time, normal volleyball is played six versus six. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you charted the amount of times you get to touch the ball during a rally, it's not very sure. many. And it's so like what they between did, 10 and 15% of the time if you're yeah, just working on the yeah. yeah. And because it's six on six, you're in a specific position. So if you're the setter, you only touch it when you set. If you're the outside hitter, you only hit it when yeah. it's set to the outside. One adjustment that they made is they spend more time playing 2v2 and 3v3. Now right. what happens there is when because when the ball comes over to the net, we get three contacts. So if we're playing 3v3 or 2v2, I actually touch the ball every time it comes over the net, every right. single time. So the reps are increased, but the quality of reps are also improved that 
when it's 2v2 and 3v3, positions are kind of thrown out the door that sometimes you have to set, sometimes you have to pass, sometimes you have to hit. And they're actually developing more well-rounded players that when they play against China in the Olympics, of course, they all have their positions. But when they, they call this, when things get out of system, where it's not going according to plan, where my hitter has to set or my setter has to hit, the U.S. women have practiced and they have those reps under their belt where they're not so uncomfortable doing something outside of their position because they've played so much 2v2, 3v3. So the upside of shrinking the, the, the number of people on the team is more reps, but also the quality of reps is increased as well. So they spend a lot of time doing that. And when you say spacing, I think I know what you mean, but can you explain what spacing looks like? Sure. Spacing would be, uh, one approach would be that we do this in school a lot, and this is the research of Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, that sometimes we'll read a chapter in a book or even in a textbook, and we get to the end and we're like, oh, this is important stuff, and I immediately reread it again. Mm-hmm. What happens when I reread is my brain kind of goes to autopilot, and we've all felt this feeling before. We're like, oh, yep, I get it, I get it, I get it. And we're really <laughs> not an active consumer there because we're so right. comfortable with the material that it's much better to wait a couple hours before we return back to that chapter. Uh, the same rules if we go back to we're trying to prepare to give a big talk. Um, like I, I've seen you've done like TED Talks before. Yep. I did one as well. Um, I found that when I was practicing for that and I would make an error in practice, the comfortable approach would be, oh, go give the talk three more times immediately. But that's sort of false progress. And of course, I'm not going to make the mistake now. It's fresh on my mind. It was actually much better to go through the practice run. I made certain errors, but I couldn't give another one for an hour. Oh, and then when I, come, when I come back to it, it's more difficult. But if I can identify that pain point and fix it now, it's much better. Um, so when we introduce spacing, this is just another way to get our brains out of autopilot. We're trying to avoid autopilot during training. But of course, we want that autopilot and comfort level when we're performing. And so yeah. it's kind of this like, distinction that we have to be aware of we don't necessarily want practice to be too easy and too comfortable because then we might slip into autopilot trevor how does this fit with you know the curse of multitasking you know we keep hearing when we you read about multitasking which is like you can't do it it's uh-huh. ridiculous to think you can be multitasking and be effective and actually weirdly enough the more you multitask the worse you get at multitasking the more (laughs) confident you are that you're a good multitasker the more certain it is that you're a terrible multitasker but it feels like this this repetition piece in some ways is about um an an invitation to multitask of some sort yeah so we want to interrupt autopilot and so some people call this randomizing practice i like to think about it as introducing variability so it'd be if i'm golfing I'm on the driving range rather than hitting my driver 20 times in a row and then moving to my nine iron. The research shows that it would be much better if I hit a driver, then I hit a nine iron, then I hit a five iron, then I hit my driver. Now I'm getting the same amount of reps and that's not technically multitasking, but what I'm doing is in introducing that variability, even if this is a session that's focused on hitting my driver by introducing some other clubs, I take my brain out of autopilot and it makes those reps actually improves the quality. 
So now each time I hit my driver, it's a fresh system that I have to reload and my brain has to really focus on this versus the 20 mindless swings. By the 10th and 11th, I'm in autopilot. It's rinse and repeat. I'm not going to get much out of those reps. And so you can kind of interrupt the autopilot by just introducing uh, a different skill. Um, And there's other ways to do it as well, but that's what we're going for there. It kind of reminds me of the the practice and mindfulness of like chiming a bell to bring your attention back. Yes. You're like, you know what? You you need to you need to be mindful about the fact that you moved from a let's say five iron to a nine iron. Yes. You need to reset. You need, it's like taking another breath, being present to that. Exactly. Rather than just kind of drifting off to wherever you might go to. That's a, I've never thought about that connection, but you're exactly right. Like the, the upside of mindfulness is we want to be present and experience that moment for all it has to offer so we can uh, like capture as much of that as we can. That's the same logic behind this type of practice. It's We want lots of reps, of course, but we want to extract the knowledge and the learning from each rep. And by spacing or introducing variability, what we're doing is we're interrupting that mindless repetition where we're just going through the motions. And so, yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. We're just taking a minute, letting that rep sink in and extracting as much as we can out of each swing that we're practicing on the range. Part of the challenge I imagine around this and just trying to manage your own brain's structure is that by keeping yourself a little bit off balance, you're not able to slip into a comfortable groove. You're you're in a place where you potentially are triggering that kind of lizard brain, that amygdala, which yeah. is kind of going, uh, I, I hate right. uncertainty, because that's yep. what that brain is all about. It's like yep. uncertainty means an increased chance of lack of survival. Yep. My brain's modus operandi is to survive at all costs, because that's how you increase the odds of your DNA carrying yep. on. So... Yep. And when your amygdala is operating, you are in some ways suboptimal, right? Because yep. your you know thinking is great, you're not your prefrontal cortex isn't as engaged as well. Correct. Everything gets a little narrow, tunnel vision, black and white. You, uh-huh. you stop assuming positive, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, how do you manage that kind of that reactive subconscious uh, uh-huh. brain psychology? whilst also trying to stay in a place of um, optimized learning? It's a fantastic question. And this this is sort of something I stumbled into because my first area of research that I was looking at was sort of this practice design. The, the, the bigger topic is called motor learning. How do you create a practice that builds skill most effectively? Mm. And so that's why we named the original website Train Ugly. We're talking all about this. And then as I was traveling around and working with teams, like I worked with lots and lots of basketball teams for weeks at a time. So we could actually dig into this. What you found is, whoa, if my, if the athletes I'm working with aren't mentally equipped to deal with the uncertainty and struggle, they're not going to get the most out of this. And so this is something I realized about five years ago. It's like I could make the the best science-backed practice of all time, but Mm -hmm. 
But if I haven't done the groundwork to talk about the mental side of learning with the athletes, I don't think they're going to benefit from a really, really well-designed practice. And so that was right. a huge turning point for me in our content where I realized, what, like, wow, before we're introducing this, we have a lot of work to do to attack the mental side. And part of it was understanding the amygdala, fear, what triggers fear, why does that happen? And once we're educating people about, number one, how fear works and the things that could create it, but then one layer underneath that would be, well, how do you learn to accept that? How do you learn to reappraise that? Uh, so what we're trying to do is build this mental toolkit so we can deal with struggle in a more optimal way when we practice. Um, and that's sort of the direction we've been taking for the last five years right. of, of our content. So in some ways, you know, to set somebody up to learn, you almost, you need to come to this kind of, let me teach you why you're going to suck over the next three days and why that's a exactly. good thing and why yep. that's not failure. That's actually the path to success. I think the three boxes that we would try to tick, one would be, let's, maybe change the way we think about learning and help you understand it's going to involve more struggle than we we would maybe like it to. Mm -hmm. The second one that we spend a lot of time on is just building this fuel, this underlying belief that learning can happen. And I know right. that seems simple, but to me, that's the fuel that we really need. And so we spend a ton of time of like, how do we organically build that belief between our ears that I can grow? That it might not be easy and it might not happen overnight, but I can grow. And so we spend a ton of time talking to talking to people about neuroplasticity, yeah. like the underlying science of how we build a skill. Well, how, next, how, you know, say, say the third point, and then I want to come back to this growth mindset piece. Yep. The, the, so the, the third point would be the understanding of our emotions and the willingness to feel. So um, just understanding that when I'm in this type of learning environment, I'm going to be activated, but that doesn't mean I'm doing something wrong. And I can learn to accept and reappraise those feelings and not shame myself for feeling them. And so that's kind of interesting research about there's kind of two different types of emotions. One is how I feel initially. And then the second is having feelings about our feelings. And that's where right. we kind of get into trouble. It's like, oh, I'm, 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 shaming myself because I'm nervous or I'm feeling uncertain and I'm feeling anxious and then I'm anxious for being anxious. And so that's when yeah. you start to spiral. And so we spend a lot of time talking to people about that as well. Um, that's interesting. But, yeah, yeah. And, and for the folks listening to the podcast, there's a, a previous episode with um, an anthropologist, Dr. Robert Biswas-Dina, where we talk about how to feel your feelings. And we talk about that kind of Love that it. slightly insulting double loop where I'm not only feeling anxious i'm feeling anxious about feeling anxious yeah, yeah. um so all right Trevor, i was going to go on like t wanting to talk about growth mindset but i actually want to talk about this final point which is around yeah. how to teach people to feel your feelings because i look i speak as a overeducated straight white man Same. and I'm, <laughs> I'm just not that good at feeling my feelings i mean i'm working on it it feels like a lifetime's practice yep. but you know <laughs> i'm kind of head oriented Sure. And when I also hang out in male sports culture, which is, you know, when I'm playing sport, that's where I'm there. There's not a whole lot of feeling going on. There's a, there's a whole right. bunch of bravado. Yep. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of like, this is what's going on for me right now. Yep. How, how do you make this something that people can step into? Cause this it's, is, a, it's this, a dark art. This is great. This is, 
This is a topic I've been digging into for about eight months, and it's still kind of messy, but I, I'm starting to get to how I would explain it to someone at a bar, which is, mm -hmm. that's kind of where we want to get. How would, I, exactly. how would I explain this to, to someone over a beer? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in these days of a pandemic, it's like just to be in a bar would be a success. It'd be great. If you, <laughs> if you get to explain it to them in the bar, it's a kind of added bonus. Right. We probably wouldn't be talking about our emotions at this point. But, <laughs> uh, all right. Let's take it from the top. Yeah. I think the big problem is that we think some emotions are good and some emotions are bad. Right. And... We call these, we, I think a better term would be these tough emotions. We kind of look at them, our perception of them as these are bad. Now, I think there's a lot of signals that we've received, big and small, that tell us that those emotions are bad. So one would sure. be sort of the, the, the masculine, like, you shouldn't feel, you have to be tough. That's essentially the underlying message there is don't feel how you're feeling. Like, don't right. show that. That means you're weak. But the other side of the spectrum in, in the interviews that I've done, it's equally destructive is this idea that we should always be positive and always be happy right. because the underlying message of that is feeling bad is bad. You should always be happy. Yeah. And if you look at the core emotions, I mean, the, the list I use is mad, sad, glad, ashamed and afraid. Yes. You've got a, you've got one, you know, one so-called positive emotion and four so-called negative emotions there. Exactly. As opposed to going, you've just got a spectrum of emotions. It's just there's, they're the feelings. <laughs> there's a spectrum of emotions. They're there for a reason. And feeling them doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. But the problem is when we think these tough emotions are negative or bad, when we do feel them, because we will, because anytime we step out of our comfort zone, anytime we're faced with a challenge, of course we feel. Yeah. The problem is that's when we slip into the type two. It's like, as a man, it's like, I've gone through breakups before where I was really sad. And I remember shaming myself like, wow, I'm so weak because I'm sad. Mm -hmm. Because my perception is feeling that is bad. Then the problem is, we have a bunch of maladaptive strategies to get rid of the feeling because we believe <laughs> we're doing something wrong. So that's right. numbing, denying, lashing out, offloading. Uh, one Another one we found is called hiding, which is I stopped doing the thing that caused the pain because right. I, I think p feeling pain is bad. So the problem is all these maladaptive strategies, regardless of which one we kind of do, and we've done them all, are they're robbing us of real opportunities for growth. And so in almost any situation where we become activated, where we're feeling some pain, there is a nugget of growth in there but we usually miss it because we race to get rid of the pain because we think we're doing something wrong when we're hurting. So I'm going to go with a stereotype here. I'm a 23 year old young man <laughs> and you're telling me this in the bar and my eyebrows are raised in a skeptical way. Yeah. I'm like, dude, or bro, I'd probably call you bro. <laughs> don't make me feel sad i'm not gonna feel sad that's not how i do that but how right. would you how would you invite me to go look sure. the power of connecting to your right. sadness so is how you learn from that emotion exactly there is a nugget of growth baked in it so when I, i've talked to two really fascinating research mark brackett 
and Susan David, and I interviewed them both, and it's still Susan. swirling. I love Susan. Susan's a good friend uh, of mine, and she's yeah. terrific. I just talked to her yesterday, so it's oh, fresh. Cool. Yeah. So it's first we need to actually – Mark had a great one-liner. He says, you have to feel it to heal it. That, okay, if I'm sad for a particular reason, I could push away and suppress that feeling and numb it and do lots of things – but I am not going to heal the underlying thing that's causing the sadness, or I'm not going to get to that aha moment. The second thing, and this is what Susan taught me, is we got to be specific about what it is we're actually feeling. So as guys, and I do this all the time, I just like to call everything anger. (laughs) It's like like things aren't going well, I'm angry. And so let's say, let's say I'm giving a presentation and the audience isn't engaged and it just didn't really go well. I think I afterwards, I'm going to be feeling a lot of things, but I would likely call it anger. I'm angry mm. at the audience for it not going well. If I have some emotional skill, though, I might be able to take a second and go, wait, what, it, what am I actually feeling? I don't think it's probably anger. It's probably shame or yeah. insecure in the fact that they didn't connect with my message or insecure in the fact that I didn't prepare enough or practice enough to connect them with my message. Like that's probably what I'm feeling. And just acknowledging that that's going to get me to a better place of growth versus they sucked. I'm angry. This is the worst On to the next thing. It's like, yeah, of course I'm not going to grow because I'm mislabeling it and I'm not willing to just take a pause and get to, well, what is it that I'm actually feeling and why am I feeling that way? This is so, a, so there's, there's, one, there's one learning piece, which is the, the learning starts by a more skillful ability to label what's actually being felt. It, the, the, the process that I look at is one, it's just the permission to feel. Then it's, right. then it's digging into like, what am I feeling? Yeah. And then it's the curiosity of like, huh, why do I feel like that? And yeah. for me, for me, like the, the presentations when I felt angry afterwards or whatever in my past, it's like in the end, it funnels down to this imposter syndrome of like, I actually don't think I'm smart enough. I don't belong here. I'm too young to do this. And that right. was the real cause of the feeling. And just being able to acknowledge that, that's very important. So I think it's the permission to feel the labeling and then the curiosity of like, where's that coming from? Now, this isn't a multi-day process. Maybe sometimes it needs to be, could be multi-week. But yeah. for most of us, it's just, it could be a couple minutes. And mm-hmm. those couple minutes are so, so, so valuable. Uh, Mark did a great job of describing this. He's like, sometimes the skeptics of this type of research are like, well, we just don't have time to do this. Yeah. And he's like, prevention is so much better than intervention. And so right. he's like, the, the way to think about it would be in a relationship, would you rather have an uncomfortable 10-minute conversation right now or a huge three-hour fight in a month? Because that's right. kind of the choice. It's like something... Plus, plus an uncomfortable 30 days leading up to that huge exactly. three-hour fight. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's always a better investment to acknowledge it and talk about it and feel it now because it will come back. And we, everyone listening has been there where it's like this one little thing rubbed us the wrong way, made us feel something. We try to bottle it, suppress it, push it to the side. It will come back at some point. It could be during like a family dinner or at the wrong time and place where it just kind of 
they call it emotional leakage, where it comes yeah. out in a different way that was bigger and even more enhanced than it was to begin with. And so whether it's taking a few minutes or an hour or a day just to just give ourselves permission to feel, label the thing and get curious about why we're feeling it. It's like that to me would be the 80-20. If we were just willing to do that, we're already way more emotionally skilled than we were to begin with. The first two steps I'm really clear on, uh, permission to feel and then a more skillful labeling. And, you know, I've seen those uh, feeling wheels yeah. that just kind of give you vocabulary to yeah. help you actually go, This it's easier for me to label it. I've got some choices to make mm-hmm. and rather than drawing on my own my own experience and my own vocabulary. Mm-hmm. The, the third step I'd love to just kind of yep. double click on that curiosity to, to explore why I'm feeling that. So how, how do you help people dig into that? Because I can see that's a place for people to kind of skate away, you yep. know, st- step yep. away from the kind of the, the uncomfortable nugget that's sitting there for them. Yep. I think Brene Brown does a good job of talking about this stuff and this, Susan in the interview I did with her yesterday was fantastic. And so it's, I think to me, the curiosity is trying to be objective as much as we can and really look at what stories am I making up? Because many times we don't have all the information in the particular situation. And so we'll just fill the gaps with things that we're inventing. Problem is sometimes those stories aren't entirely accurate. And sometimes they could exaggerate the magnitude of the challenge that we're facing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things. And so when we're getting curious, it's like, okay, what additional information do I need to gather? Am I making something up? Am I exaggerating something? And so to me, getting curious is just trying to cut through like all of the weeds and get to the core of like, all right, what do I know actually happened? How am I zoomed out enough to see the problem for what it is where I'm not so zoomed in and consumed by the problem that it seems uh, insurmountable? How do I zoom out, look at it for what it is? That's a skill. I think we get better at that through practice, but no one is perfect with any of this stuff at all. This is sort of the the ideal theory that we're chasing. And then when we put it into practice, it it gets messy, but it's a good toolkit to to keep in mind, I think. You know, that... Trevor, that reminds me of um, the the work of Marshall Rosenberg around nonviolent communication, and mm-hmm. amongst other things, he's like, it's really helpful to be able to separate out data from judgment. Yeah, uh, what are the facts, and what am I making up about the facts? Right, and how so often, you know, what's going on for us is a small amount of data and an yep. enormous amount of judgment. Like to pick right. up on your story, all oh, that talk went badly. Well, what's the, I'm feeling, I'm feeling ashamed about that. So what's the data behind that feeling? Exactly. Well, you know, I saw some dude in the corner who was checking his phone. (laughs) Right. Right. That's interesting. That's a, that's actually, he was one in, you know, one in 500 people. But I've made a judgment that that means everybody was checking their phone and that means nobody was engaged. That means this, that means that. And maybe he was taking notes. like (laughs) uh, Exactly. So just starting to see the stories you build around um, the limited evidence that you have is often an eye-opening experience. Yeah, like the way I – the the one-minute or two-minute story that encapsulates most of this stuff and how we do it wrong – like a few years ago, I went through a tough breakup, and I did like what most guys do. 
first I felt, absolutely I felt all sorts of pain. Uh, and then I started shaming myself for feeling the pain. I was like, you're so weak. A man wouldn't feel like this. And so I'm like in all these emotions. And then a common tactic we do when we feel like that is we offload and we blame. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the person I offloaded it on was her. I was like, she's the worst. And right. then I call, called my best friend and he doubled down on it. Like, yeah, she's the worst. <laughs> and so we call this. That's the, to be fair, that is the job of a best friend. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I'm not hating on him, but this is what we do. And yeah. we call those maladaptive strategies the way I think about it. They're pain relievers. Yeah, that made me feel better. But if I just stop there of like, yep, she's the worst, I learn nothing. Yes, I feel better, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't to stop feeling. The goal is to grow. And so I was lucky at the time I read uh, Rising Strong by Brene Brown, and she talks a lot about this stuff. And I realized like, whoa, I kind of have to step back into this. And luckily, luckily for me, as her as my guide, I did. And I realized like, wow, I had a lot to do with this breakup. Like a lot of it was on my shoulders, not all of it, but some of it. And that will make me better in the next relationship. But the only way to get to that nugget was to step back in and just be willing to feel. You have to feel it to heal it. Like Mark's one-liner is so true. In order to grow from this experience and gain the knowledge that's there, I have to be willing to feel. If the goal is to stop feeling, I'm probably going to miss the nugget. If I'm willing to feel, I'm more likely to find it. Trevor, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've appreciated how articulate you are around this what it takes to become a smart learner, to have that kind of meta understanding of how learning works so uh-huh. that you can learn smarter. For people who are interested in your work, where can they find you in the world? Go to thelearnerlab.com and then that's where our videos and podcasts and articles live. So everything is there. Perfect. Trevor Reagan, you're awesome. Thank you very much. You're awesome. Thank you. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.